Um, can you tell us um, like a family story or legend about your grandmother that's been passed on? Oh, I'm so glad you asked because I was wondering how I was going to weave this into it. So my grandmother, after she had married my grandfather, my grandfather was a very sweet man. He was a lot more, I would say, passive and easygoing. And my grandmother was 100% the matriarch. And my grandmother, because she was a nurse, kind of became the the like community's nurse, especially for, for women. So she definitely was this figure in the community. And she was somebody who would tell little girls, that you shouldn't rely on your husband or getting married to, to kind of get ahead. You should go and study and have your own education and find a job and, you know, be able to support yourself. That was one really cool thing, which was kind of, you know, unusual in the 1950s in Iran. But the thing that was most kind of my favorite legend is there was apparently this high-ranking colonel who also lived in their complex or their community. And one time he, he was seen beating his wife. And my grandmother found out and she went up to him and she said, if you hit your wife one more time, I will destroy you. Basically suggesting that she would strip him of his rank, report him and make sure he would never work again. And at that point, he actually stopped and and he was afraid of her because she, she had that kind of a presence and demeanor where she, you know, was not about seeing injustice. We actually call her grandmother Yingying, which is the Chinese word for grandmother on the father's side of the family. Uh, I called him, I call him Grandpa Foot. We in our native language in Hindi, we call them Dada and Dadi. My other grandmother would be Maman Bazur, which is Persian for grandmother. Mikhechu means old woman in Kinyarwanda. I called her Safta, which is a Hebrew word for grandma. Everybody called her Mami Dita. We called her Mima, Mima and Dada. Grandma. Hi, I'm Steph. And I'm Robin. Welcome to Stories from Grandparents, the podcast where we share stories about and from grandparents. What do you think of when you think of family legends? I think of epic stories and I think of epic people. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And I think without looking for those stories, we ended up hearing a lot of these family legends in our interviews. So people that were sharing these stories about their grandparents that they had heard that were passed down, that were absolute legends in and of themselves. And then there were stories that just the grandparent was legendary. On today's episode, we have a few different types of family legends about and from grandparents. Our first guest, Denise, is talking about her grandmother, who was a legend in and of herself, both for her family and the community. Part of the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast is because I actually went to your grandmother's funeral, yes. which was enormous. And she she was still in Rwanda, but uh, there was like a live feed, a video um, uh, at the church. Yes. And there was at least a hundred people at the church. And then the video feed, like in Rwanda, there had to have been like 300 people yes. for sure. Technically and, there was like 500, the, the whole city and the people around the country, they all came to her funeral. She was a legend. She was, uh, she was so loved. She, she was born, grew up, 
married, stayed in the same city. So she was born downtown, Butare. So she knew everyone. So she was a center of uh, feeding everyone, and uh, she was amazing. And she was too funny. That's why when people found out that she passed away, people came to her funeral. I was, myself, I was like, wow. And I asked my aunt, I said, you know, like, I never saw this many people for a funeral. She said, can you imagine living in the same home for over 100 years? Yes, you will know this much people. Yeah, it made sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we saw how she treated everyone. So the <laughs> where she, my mom was born, they called Tumba. Uh, that's like right beside the university and the military camp. There were some, um, you know, prostitutes. They were like the little village not far from there. And we never knew because my grandma treated everyone. Like they would come to her house crying sometimes. They would, she would feed them and she would help them. And um, during the genocide, one of them saved my aunt because she saw her running away from the killers and she had her in her house. And um, how she survived in genocide, I'm not going to say it was, I don't know, she was lucky, but uh, the the president during the genocide, the president of the republic, he lived across the street from uh, my grandpa's house before she, he became president. He was like a doctor. And uh, he made another say, do not kill those people. You can kill the whole country except this family. Yeah. So she was in a wood. They are killing everyone. And... Uh, they said, no, no, there was another food not to kill you. Get up and go to your house. So sometimes I say her kindness, her way to live with everyone, not just her. My grandpa, too, was an amazing, quiet man. But my grandma was like, really powerful. Uh, you know, uh, it's not like people did something wrong to deserve to die. That's what not what I'm meaning, but... Uh, some people recognize her kindness and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And uh, after the genocide, it was even worse. She she became like Mother Teresa for everyone. Yeah, because that's what was coming out so clearly, even though um, the funeral was very French. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was not understanding a ton. She had one the mostly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, uh, was just that it sounded like she became such a community figure yes. at, after the genocide. Yes. And the amount of people that leaned on her over the years. Yes. So she, yeah, she, you know, technically raised every single orphan. Uh, you know, there were so many orphans in the country. And uh, she picked up every kid from her family, from my grandpa's family, from people on the street. And uh, she became like a mom for the whole city. Like you will come cry and she will be there for you. She will feed you. She paid for people to go to school with nothing, but she will give everything she had. Our next story from Emmanuel is a story that he's learned from his family about his grandfather, and it's a rather epic cinematic tale. 
Today, Transylvania belongs to Romania, but it, for you know, most of history, uh, or recent history anyway, uh, it was its own region, and it belonged to Hungary, and it belonged to Romania, and there were transient populations that went through there, and so Transylvania has always been a really unique place in that regard. And there's a really great story that was told to me by my father. It was told to me many times, and, and unfortunately, I, I don't even understand every detail I, or remember every detail with perfect accuracy. Uh, but it's a real story, that's for sure. Um, and so the story is that um, when my grandfather, so his name was Robert Weiss, so he was born in 1922, uh, and so that would mean that when the war started in 39, he would have been, you know, a teenager. He decided to learn to become a lathe operator. And with a cousin of his, they are both apprenticed. So at the age of 12 or 13, to be lathe operators. And basically it was slavery. The, he was the only Jew uh, out of 20 or so young boys who were apprenticing to be a lathe operator at one of these factories. This would have been in the, um, you know, the, the, the early 30s, um, you know, maybe something like 1936, 1935. Uh, he, he, he was apprenticing with other boys who were also 12, 13 years old. And there were a few boys that might have been a little bit older. And he was the only Jew. And Jews got beaten all the time back then, you know, just like, you know, marginalized or, or, or small minorities get beaten all the time here. Uh, maybe not all the time, but, you know, it happens, uh, you know, that he was picked on, but not only picked on, they were really physically beaten. Uh, Jews were hated, and they were hated much because of uh, propaganda and ignorance, you know. A lot of people didn't realize um, he was Jewish because, you know, we know that Jews don't look any different, you know, we know that today, but people really thought that Jews had horns and had really big uh, noses and all these stereotypes. He did actually have a very big nose. I remember when I was a, a young child remembering him as a very old man in his 80s with very large ears and a nose. But, but, but aside from that, you know, that, that, you know, there are many people that are not Jewish with big noses. Um, but at one point, there was a fight. So at the end of the day, they would have to line up. Uh, and they would each take their turn to go in front of a sink to wash their tool. They had their, each their own set of tools, hand tools. And these were very precious, like a barber's, you know, uh, um, uh, clippers or something. So um, he, he was being bullied because he was being, uh, people were cutting in front of him in the line, like, you go last, you, the Jew goes last. And so he stood his ground and he said no. And they said, okay, well, you'll see after work, you know. You'll see. And so it ended there. And a few days or weeks later, I don't know, um, they, they quartered him outside of work in, in the street or something. And so he had a, a physical fist fight with this guy who was 17. So he was older. And, uh, and you know, the way the story is told is that they were, you know, it's like almost like in a movie. They were, you know, fighting, you know, very hard and rolling on the ground until finally uh, they decided uh, that there would be a truce. And he said, OK, you know what? I respect you now. You, 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 you know, you know how to fight. And, and so uh, can we call it a truce and, and be friends? And so they agreed. And from then on, you know, it's a little bit like when you go to prison and, you know, you beat, beat up the, the strongest guy. Well, you know, he had a better time. But years later, after he had been sent to the camps 
and survived. And after he had escaped the camps, because he did escape, um, or his camp was liberated, but even though it was liberated, the whole area was still under, you know, Nazi uh, occupation and it is still very dangerous, got caught by the Hungarian army. And the war was not over yet. And so he got caught, he got put on a truck, shackled and brought before a lieutenant, you know, because there was there were officers and there were soldiers. And so the soldiers brought him before a lieutenant for, you know, what would usually be a death sentence. And who was this lieutenant? The same guy he had fought with, you know, years before as an apprentice, as a young boy. And so the guy remembered him, of course. And I said, listen, I'm, I'm going to put you on a truck and I'm going to have the soldiers drive you to the Romanian border because R Romania was not in Transylvania. Well, I, I'm not sure about Transylvania, but Romania was not, you know, under occupation. It was not. It was a safe place, safer place anyway. Uh, and so he says, you know, it's because of our history. You know, I'll, I'll save your life. I'll have them drive you to the border. So... Um, so he said, you know, well, thank you. And so they tied him up and put him in the back of a truck and he had the, a soldier drive him. And at some point on the way to the border, um, the, my grandfather freed himself from his shackles or his ropes or whatever. And he, you know, and the story goes that he knocked out, but the, what's implied is that he killed the, that's what's implied, you know, yeah. because people don't like to talk about this, but my father you know, does put, he says knocked out. He always says knocked out, but who knows? Uh, the driver, and he stole the truck, and he went back and he filled the truck with Jews, and he took them to the, Swede to the uh, Swiss embassy, and then where it was safe, and the Swiss embassy. And then he could have just stayed there, but he didn't. He took the truck out two more times until the truck didn't have gas or until there was a problem, until it was no longer possible and went back at, at huge peril yeah. to himself. And so he, uh, he brought them. And so by the time he was done and the truck was done and everything, there were a thousand people in the Swiss yeah. embassy and a thousand people in a large house. When I say large house, I mean, I'm talking about a house. It could be a uh, 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 you know, maybe 3,000 square feet. I don't know how big the house was. This could be research, actually. But it's a house. I mean, it's not like a huge building, you know, like the U.S. embassy here in Ottawa. It's, it's a house, probably not a small house, but still, a 1,000 people, to think that a 1,000 people could fit in there is unthinkable. And they didn't fit in there. People, there was not enough space for people to lie down. You were standing up, you know, straight, and, and, and people had to take turns to sleep, you know, because only maybe one out of 10 people could sleep at any given time. And so it was uh, a lot of people died there and there was not enough food for everyone. And it was cold. And even though it's not Canada, that area is cold. And so a lot of people died. And uh, because my grandfather was in that house for a year with a thousand people, but he survived. And why did he survive? Because he was useful. He was the only one who knew how to fix the heater. Well, he didn't know. He figured out how to fix the heater, the furnace or the boiler. I'm not sure if it was a furnace or a boiler, but it was the, the heating system. And, but it broke constantly, this heating system. It wasn't reliable. So because it was constantly broken and it was so uh, essential for the survival of everyone, uh, there was a little alcove, enough for one man, just underneath the boiler, 
And that was his spot. He had a designated spot because at any time he needed to be able to fix the boiler. And if he couldn't fix the boiler, then more people would die. And um, in, compar in comparison to the, uh, to the work camps, the Nazi work camps before, uh, this wasn't as bad. It was bad, though, but it wasn't as bad. So, um, and then after that, the war, you know, ended and, uh, and he was able to leave and go to Romania. Our next guests, Jill and Trevor, are brother and sister that we interviewed together, and they each tell a story about their grandparents. I'm going to talk about my grandmother, Shirley. Uh, she was born in Devon, New Brunswick. Um, when she was about 12, 12 or 13, if my memory, you know, sometimes over the years, the, the, the date and timeline gets a little foggy, but um, her father, they were having Sunday dinner, and he got a call that the old DJ Purdy ship had to go through the train bridge here in Fredericton. So he just said, okay, I'm going to be right back. I'm going to borrow your bike. So he, he took one of his son's bikes and biked down to the train bridge, and my grandmother said they were all kind of sitting and watching, and they saw the train open, or the, sorry, the bridge open, and they saw it close, but he never came back. So that was in May of 42, and they recovered his body, I think it was in July, July 20th, that same year, in St. John, New Brunswick, uh, near one of the pulp and paper mills there. And I guess this is kind of one of the first legends. They, they said on his death certificate that I actually have a copy of, that it was a very brutal death, and there was an investigation into it for murder. Um, they weren't sure if someone had attacked him on the bridge. They did know it went up and went down. But eventually they settled and, and thought that he must have had a heart attack or something and just fallen in the water. Growing up, the legends, you know, I guess with my grandfather in, in the woods, even myself, he's passed a lot of that down to me. You know, his, his guns, his rifles, his, his old hunting knives and hunting belt. Like, I have all of it. And, and it's actually, it's kind of a close story. The shotgun that he, he had given me, which which I have used over the years. Well, a, sh a shotgun it is more close range. You'd use that for like birds and rabbits, that sort of thing. He used to hunt in New Maryland quite quite frequently, and he was happened to be out when he was younger. This was before he was married, I believe, and he was quite a ways from home. I think he told me he was about two two to three kilometers from home, which gets to the end of the story. But he was uh, he was walking along, and he came up on top of a hill. And he could hear like a like a commotion, like really loud. And he stopped, and there was a herd of moose coming towards him. And obviously, as any human being would be terrified, uh, especially him having a shotgun, uh, which a shotgun and a moose really aren't aren't two that go together. So he went up a tree. The the moose he put him up a tree, and they sat around the bottom of the tree like they were walking around. And he told me he said he could put the rifle or the barrel of the gun down and touched the nose of the moose looking up at his, up the tree at him. Uh, so anyway, he said he sat there for, you know, half an hour or so, and then he figured his only option was to try to make a shot. So anyway, he ended up shooting one of the moose, uh, killing it. Um, and obviously when the shot went, the other moose scattered. Um, so he spent a little bit more time in the tree and ended up having to go home and get his brother, his older brother, Tommy. And they came back and cut up the moose and carried it on their backs three kilometers out of the woods. 
Um, and, and I was always kind of, it was one of those stories you're not really sure. You know, it's like, uh, you shot a moose with a shotgun? I don't believe so. And then anyway, he described the shotgun to a T that he hadn't seen in years. And I'm just like, well, it's the shotgun that I have. This is going to be true. So, you know, that, that's the kind of story, you know, the, the stories that happen with him is almost unbelievable, really. But it was true. Our next guest is my friend Chris, who doesn't talk about his grandparent, but this is certainly a great family legend. It's kind of lots of stories about my dad's side, but I feel like most, I feel like a lot of them are not uh, credible. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to fact check me. Like I, like I have a relative on that side. I don't know quite how he's related to me, but his name is, his name was R. Cool. Pretty cool name, eh? I was trying to, I was telling my wife that if we have a son that I'm going to name, I want to name him Arcool. A-R-C-U-L-E. But Arcool was like apparently a very, like a, a very large dude. And uh, rumor has it that he punched an ox between the eyes and knocked it out cold. <laughs> it's pretty badass. But I feel like a lot of people, I feel like I've heard that rumor in other contexts. I feel like there's a, there's just a cliche thing about people punching oxes or cows or something in the face. Have you ever heard about that before? No. Yeah, I feel like there's stories like that. I don't know why he would do that in the first place. Like, why would you punch the ox in the face? And you got to imagine, too, that the ox was like his tractor. Like, he used the ox to plow the fields, right? So why would you punch your tractor in the face? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Stories from Grandparents. If you have any interest in submitting stories or if you want to participate on the podcast, please send us an email at storiesfromgrandparentspodcast at gmail.com.